We <coughs> arrive now at chapter 7, which is called Attending to the Deathless. So uh, in Pali, uh, the word deathless is amata, or also amara. So amaravati, the deathless realm, it's uh, the uh, name of this monastery. My name, Amara, Amaro, is uh, also the same. Mara is death, Amara, deathless. Uh, Amaravati, the deathless realm. So this is a uh, uh, <coughs> particular relevance to this uh, this monastery in itself. And one of the reasons why Lumpur Sumedho chose the name Amaravati was um, not just because it was an ancient uh, uh, sort of ho uh, holy city, it was the southern uh, limit of the Buddhist world in India, in Andhra Pradesh, uh, and uh, an ancient stupa was uh, was there. Um, but also, uh, when this monastery was founded in the early 80s, and it was a time of a great threat of nuclear war, there was the arms race going on between the Soviet Union and the um, the US, and uh, so there was a lot of talk of <coughs> what they called um, limited nuclear war in Europe which, of course, the Europeans were not terribly happy about, <laughs> particularly in uh, Germany, Poland, and the places that realized they were going to be the battleground. So there, were, um, there was a lot of anxiety in the air and huge protests around this country. And, uh, and then one of the things, uh, in true British fashion, which really put the, um, the icing on the cake, as it were, was that uh, during all this, there's hundreds of thousands of people, these uh, protest marches were formed by Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, CND, and, uh, and literally hundreds of thousands of people marching. And uh, the uh, the British government then produced this pamphlet uh, that went through every single door in the country. It was called Protect and Survive. Protect and Survive. And uh, <clears throat> so th this caused um, a combination of, of uh, amusement and panic because they they suggested things like you know in the case of nuclear attack if you haven't got an, a, a basement or, or a, any kind of underground shelter um, to make a, a, a shelter a shelter space within your house uh, take one of your doors off its hinges <laughs> and lean it against the wall and then crawl crawl under the space formed by the the door leaning against the wall so of course a large number of uh, British comedians and immediately produce these sketches of rummaging, <laughs> rummaging through the drawers looking for your screwdriver while the missiles are landing yeah, all around you. This is the best that the British government, this is how we, this is how we prepare for nuclear war, is to, taking a door off its hinges to, and hope for the end. Fingers crossed, hope for the best. So there was a lot of anxiety in the air, and so Lumpur um, Sumato wanted to um, bring to people's minds the, uh, a counterpart to that or a, a counterbalance to that. So because of so much fear of death and uh, the um, concern for death and destruction, he wanted to bring uh, deathlessness into people's consciousness. And so that that was around this time, Amravati was, was uh, first, the idea was first sort of launched in 83 and then the community opened up, uh, began here in 84. And so it was around about that time well, uh, this was concern was in the air. So that was one of the reasons why Lumpur Sumedho chose the name for uh, this monastery. So going to this chapter now. Attending to the Deathless, Chapter 7. 
This chapter, and those subsequent to it, in this section of the book, will describe the practice of turning toward the unconditioned, the deathless, the need to attend to it, and some of the ways that the Buddha talked about its nature. And this first passage comes from the Book of the Threes in the Anguttara Nikaya, and it's a discussion between two of the Buddha's great disciples, uh, Venerable Anuruddha, uh, who was um, from the uh, uh, Sakyan kingdom of Kapi, uh, from Kapilavatu, and so he was from the Buddha's family, and then Venerable Sariputta, who was already an Arahant. Venerable Anuruddha was not an Arahant at this point. He was a, a, a non-returner, an Anagami. Then the Venerable Anuruddha went to where Venerable Sariputta was staying and, on arrival, greeted him courteously. After an exchange of friendly greetings, he sat down to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to Venerable Sariputta, By means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, I see the thousandfold cosmos. My energy is aroused and unsluggish. My mindfulness is established and unshaken. My body is calm and unaroused. My mind is concentrated into singleness, and yet my mind is not released from the outflows, from the asavas, th uh, through lack of clinging. Then Venerable Sariputta responds, My friend, when the thought occurs to you, by means of the divine eye purified and surpassing the human, I see the thousandfold cosmos. That is related to your conceit. When the thought occurs to you, my energy is aroused and unsluggish, my mindfulness is established and unshaken, my body is calm and unperturbed, my mind is concentrated into singleness. That is related to your restlessness. When the thought occurs to you, and yet my mind is not released from the outflows through lack of clinging, that is related to your anxiety. It would be well if, abandoning these three qualities, not attending to these three qualities, you directed your mind to the deathless element. So after that, Venerable Anuruddha, abandoning those three qualities, not attending to those three qualities, directed his mind to the deathless element. Dwelling alone, secluded, heedful, ardent and resolute, he in no long time reached and remained in the supreme goal of the holy life for which people rightly go forth from home into homelessness, knowing and realizing it for himself in the here and now. He knew, birth is ended, the holy life fulfilled, the task done. There is no more coming into any state of being. And thus Venerable Anuruddha became another of the Arahants. There are many such delightful and pithy vignettes in the Pali Canon. The simplicity and directness of the exchange between two companions in the holy life. The apparently affectionate and ironic demolition of the pride and anxiety in relation to achievements that the average spiritual aspirant might be pleased even to approach. The direct and practical pointing out of the path. All of these elements are present in this brief account. Probably the most significant uh, to the theme of this investigation onto, in the Deathless is the process of turning away from even the most exalted domains of the conditioned realm. 
Venerable Sariputta's unerring acuity of vision has discerned that even though his friend's meditation has been bringing up some spectacular results, Venerable Anuruddha was later named by the Buddha to be the one most accomplished in seeing into other realms of existence, he had been missing the crucial and liberating element, the presence of the unconditioned. To enable his friend's attention to make this radical to enable his friend's attention to make this radical shift of view, Venerable Sariputta employs the tactic of naming the ways in which his mind is misapprehending and identifying with these experiences. He also, it seems, is defining the three problems that Venerable Anuruddha is beset with in terms of the three, uh, the final three of the ten fetters, the Sangyojana. The fetters of conceit, Asmimana, which is the eighth fetter, Restlessness, Udacha, which is the ninth, and ignorance, Avicca, which is the tenth fetter. The last of the three might be debatable as a parallel for anxiety, quote-unquote. The Pali word in the text here is kukuchasmin. However, as Venerable Anuruddha is clearly close to the final realization of arahantship, these three particular elements would necessarily need to be seen and overcome for his heart's liberation to occur. His brother in the holy life is merely pointing out to him that the I that keeps appearing in his thoughts about those two achievements and the lack of the third achievement has been obscuring the deathless element and has actually been the stumbling block obstructing the path. So this is um, a very uh, sort of significant exchange and uh, in a way the Venerable Anuruddha has been putting forth great effort and his meditation has had some some very, very good results, as he describes. He can see he's already developed enough concentration to develop psychic powers to see into all sorts of different realms of existence. Uh, He's got a lot of energy, his mind is concentrated, his body is calm, and uh, uh, he's uh, he's, uh, concentrated and and, uh, stable. And so he's got all these good things, all these wholesome qualities that are there in sort of full array, and then, but then there's the question: Why? Why is the mind not liberated? I've got all the ingredients, all the right, uh, all the right, uh, say, uh, qualities are here. Uh, how come there isn't liberation? But uh, what the, uh, Venerable Sariputta, who's known for his extraordinarily, uh, say, clear and refined analytical understanding, and also his capacity to to explain and uh, Sariputta, even though Sariputta had no psychic powers at all, he was also he was one of the most accomplished meditators. So it's an interesting combination. So uh, he uh, he didn't have Sariputta didn't have the ability to see into other realms or read people's minds or fly through the air or anything like that. But he was an extremely adept meditator. So as a as a, uh, a uh, an interesting combination. So he would understand exactly what was going on in Venerable Anuruddha's mind. But he he wouldn't have had those same kind of um, abini uh, abiniha the kind of psychic powers or, or sort of experiences of, of different dimensions. So what he was seeing was that uh, if, if you know the English expression trying to turn a silk purse into a sow's sorry trying to to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. That means you're uh, a sow is a, a pig. Uh, so a um, trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. You're trying to manipulate the conditioned realm uh, and expecting it to, to, uh, to yield 
the realization of the unconditioned to, to yield liberation. It can't, no matter how refined or perfect the, the conditions are, they're still, they're still conditioned. They're still aspects of the, the realm of, of form, of things that arise and, and cease. So that necessarily you're, you're, you're looking in, uh, in the wrong place. As, um, yeah, as the Lumpur Chao, who's, who's extremely adept at coming up with these very succinct uh, statements, he said, you know, if you're looking for, uh, for, um, for certainty, or if you're looking for uh, completion in that which is incomplete, if you're looking for certainty in that which is uncertain, you have to be disappointed. So if you're looking for, for uh, liberation in that, in that which is not liberated, that which is subject to beginning and ending, birth and death, then you're looking in the wrong place, so you have to be disappointed. So um, they probably have a Pali expression for turning a, a um, trying to, to turn a, a sow's ear into a silk purse, I'm trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, but I'm not sure what the Pali would be for that. But it's uh, uh, that sense of you're looking in the wrong place, you're looking in the, the, the wrong way. And so that it's also kind of interesting, it's... it's um, uh, there's an element of it of, sort of also trying too hard because when you you're trying really hard and you've got everything right and you you still haven't got where you want to go you still haven't got things together then what you do it is what I would do is try harder right just keep pushing just push some more do do some more so it's very much related in some respects to the experience of Venerable Ananda on the um, after the Buddha's uh, final passing away the Parinibbana. Ananda was still an anagami, so he was the Buddha's attendant and his, um, uh, as say, his uh, uh, co- companion and the memorizer of the Buddha's teachings. And he was so busy looking after all the, being the Buddha's secretary and um, event planner, kind of looking after all the Buddha's uh, affairs and uh, arranging visitors and and taking care of the Buddha's health and so on, that he he didn't reach arahantship uh, by the time that there was the parinibbana. And so the, the, uh, after the Parinibbana, which was in May, uh, the full moon of May, they were going to have a, um, uh, a um, Sangha council. So they gathered 500 arahants at the, the Satapani cave in uh, Rajagaha. So King Ajatasattu had sort of prepared this, um, this cave uh, where all this, uh, the arahant disciples could gather. And they were going to go through the whole teachings. The idea was that they would gather for the three months of the rains, uh, and they would recite all of the monastic rule and all of the the teachings. Ananda had perfect recall, so uh, and he had memorized all of the Buddha's teachings. So he was the obvious person to to recount the the suttas, the Buddha's uh, statements of teaching. And then Venerable Upali was the one who was the most expert in Vinaya, so he was going to recite all the all the Vinaya rules and uh, observances. But uh, uh, Venerable Upali was an Arahant, but Venerable Ananda was not. And so then Mahakasapa, who was um, looked to as a, a kind of leader of the, the Sangha at this point, said, unless Ananda has reached Arahantship, he can't come to the meeting. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're the one who's memorized all the teachings, but if you're not an Arahant, you can't come to the meeting. <laughs> so um, you kind of put that on the uh, in front of a, uh, Venerable Ananda, so poor Ananda, dear Ananda, the night before the meeting is supposed to ha- begin, he's um, uh, practicing meditation desperately, trying to reach arahantship. 
And uh, he, uh, so he's up all night long, sitting, sitting and walking meditation. And uh, as the story goes, uh, as he sees the, st- the sky beginning to lighten and the dawn coming, he realizes, well, the, you know, the day is coming and I haven't realized full and complete enlightenment. It's going to be a long day anyway, so I, I, I might as well take a rest because uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to achieve uh, the completion of the the path uh, now. And so it said that uh, when he sat down on the on the bench, after his feet left the ground and before his head hit the pillow, he realized total and complete enlightenment. So he is known as the arahant who was uh, who was enlightened outside the four postures. <laughs> <laughs> He was neither sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. <laughs> so many unique qualities the Venerable Ananda had. He was uh, known for being enlightened outside the four postures. And according to the commentaries, uh, just to emphasize the point that he had completed the path, he arrived at the meeting three feet above the ground in full lotus, sort of flew into the meeting. <laughs> just in case anyone's got any doubt. <laughs> so... Uh, it was when he gave up, then enlightenment ripened, because of the all the effort, the pressure. I've got to, I got to, I should, I should, I should. The 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 tryingness was getting in the way, and so when that's that little bit of relaxation, rather like going into overdrive, the fifth gear, same uh, <coughs> same uh, same speed, less revs. You can just drop back a notch, so that. Uh, there's this kind of relaxation, a, a letting go. Um, and so with uh, Venerable Anuruddha, he had all these very, very highly developed spiritual qualities, but um, he was trying to, uh, uh, to try too hard and also focusing on just the sort of um, polishing, as they, in, in the Zen tradition they say, polishing a, a, uh, polishing a brick, hoping to turn it into a diamond. And... Uh, that they have Zen stories of that of that nature when the, the um, trying to uh, to say reach perfection through uh, say having a, a kind of got all all of the conditions of your body your mind and your and the knowledge of the teachings all sort of lined up. There's one of those Zen stories where uh, in a particular Zen monastery there's uh, a certain monk who's who's like this, a sort of totally expert in everything and and um, uh, hasn't reached full enlightenment. And then one day he, he's walking through the, the monastery grounds and he, uh, and he sees the abbot there with a, with a brick in his hand and, and rubbing a cloth backwards and forwards across it. And, the, and he sort of, he thinks, this is really, but the abbot's gone crazy. He's sitting there rubbing a brick with a piece of cloth. What's he, what's he doing? But he's, excuse me, venerable sir, um, for what reason are you sitting there you know, by, the, by the path? Um, uh, uh, rubbing that brick with a with a cloth, and he said, um, "Oh, it's good that you ask. I'm trying to turn it into a diamond." Venerable sir, um, I hate to say this to you, but uh, you know you, it, the the brick will never turn into a diamond just by you polishing it with a piece of cloth. He's exactly, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then gets up and walks off as they do in these Zen stories. And then, uh, that was a teaching, so that the. Uh, that um, uh, Venerable Anuruddha was trying to do the same thing, it was like polishing a brick, expecting it to turn into a diamond in a similar vein. To continue then.
It's also worthy of note that the wording of the Venerable Sariputta's advice implies that it is just a change of perspective, a different locus of attention that is needed, not a scrapping of all that's gone before. So it's not a matter of, you know, you were doing things wrong, you shouldn't be concentrated or you shouldn't be mindful, you shouldn't be energetic, you shouldn't um, be so relaxed in, in body and so forth. Like, no, it wasn't that that was out of place, it was just a, a slight change of perspective. A simple analogy is the refocusing of the eyes in such a way as to see the computer-generated hidden 3D images in a magic eye picture, rather than a meaningless blur. So, is this familiar to people? A magic eye picture. So, when there was a few, there was a couple of magic eye books at Abhayagiri Monastery when um, we were uh, doing this book. I wanted to include a magic eye picture in the book, but Ajahn Pasna has difficulty seeing the 3D images. So, and so he didn't think it was a good idea. <laughs> but uh, the so the image is created by a computer, and so at, at ordinary uh, ordinary vision, if you if you focus your eyes at the at the surface of the page, then it just looks like a, a meaningless blur of dots or, or or stripes or there's no apparent pattern. But if you let your vision fo- uh, refocus a, a short distance about um, 20 centimeters or, or a foot past the, the page, uh, then the, the, a three-dimensional image emerges from the, the printed surface. And uh, if, the, uh, if the, 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 that kind of relaxed attention is maintained, then you can kind of look at it from this side, look at it from that side, look at it from above, and you can see uh, you see the different things in the picture. You can see there's a car, there's a shop, and then there's a name on the front of the shop, and there's people walking here and there. So they don't move. <laughs> you don't have the moving objects, but it's a three-dimensional picture. And then you refocus your eye on the sur- on your eyes on the surface, and and the, the picture disappears. You relax your vision, and then the three D image emerges. So it's um, uh, I felt it was a, a good way of of. Uh, uh, I say, representing that quality of a change of perspective. There's because with a magic eye picture, if you try too hard, you can't see it. If you don't try enough, you can't see it. But you have to try just the right amount, and you have to try just in the right way. But when you do, then it's like sometimes this carpet here. Some of you might not realize this is actually also a magic eye picture right here. <laughs> so sometimes when I'm sitting here in the middle of this room and um, uh, either after the meal time or breakfast time. Um, sometimes what I'll do is I'll I'll uh, f- uh, look at the carpet and then just relax my vision, and then the carpet turns into like, a f- uh, like the surface of the sea. It's like it turns into waves, and so I do, you know, I, I couldn't really do it now while I'm talking to you. But <laughs> if you if you relax the vision in a certain way, then the carpet starts moving. You refocus your eyes and then it stops. Then you, you loosen your vision, and then the, the, the waves start flowing here, there, and, and, and everywhere. You, you, uh, you sharpen the focus, and the waves stop. So it's like a, a, um, <coughs> a, uh, a way of recognizing, A, that what we perceive is subjective and conditioned, but also the, the, the effect of the, the, the manner of attending the, the way that things are are regarded 
has its effect. And so, um, I th anyway, I, I thought it was a quite a... a, a, a we, we went back and forth on that with this book, whether we should include a magic eye picture or not. We decided uh, against it uh, eventually. But um, because also some people just find it... Uh, I mean, Ajahn Pasana could see them uh, if, he, if he really was interested, but <laughs> he didn't really like the idea either. Because also some people just find it really irritating. Like, it's so bloody annoying, all these people staring at these stupid things. You can't, there's nothing there, really. And, so he thought, well, this is supposed to be a Dhamma book. And you want to have all of it as accessible to people as possible. So um, probably a good idea to leave it out. So we, we left it out. Yes. Magic eye pictures? Uh, I think we, no, probably is. Yeah. Uh, I think you'd, I'm not quite sure what they would be and how you'd find them, but uh, they're they're not. Hmm? Yeah, it's uh, if you ask Juan uh, where to find that, I, I don't know what the name of the books. There's there's many of them that were were done, uh, but it's called a magic eye. Furthermore, inclining the mind attending to the deathless, is usually expressed in the phrase, this is peaceful, this is exquisite. Underscoring that this shift of perspective does not just mean seeing things from a different angle, it refers instead to realizing the presence of a, of a dimension of peace and beauty hitherto unappreciated. It also needs to be stressed that Venerable Anuruddha was an anagami, a non-returner, thus at the penultimate stage of enlightenment. When this exchange with Venerable when sorry, the penultimate stage of enlightenment, when this exchange with Venerable Sariputta took place, many of his spiritual qualities were extremely ripe, and without that ripeness, the immense preparation necessary for full understanding of the nature of reality, the breakthrough to full enlightenment could not have come so swiftly. It takes more than the capacity to see the hidden dimensions of a magic eye picture to fully liberate the heart. It's not or the carpet, you know. <laughs> it's not just a matter of seeing waves in the carpet to um, to uh, uh, realize total and complete enlightenment. So, any questions, reflections, thoughts on that? Yes, James. I'm just wondering when it says attend to the deathless, what does it actually imply to do? What was the was it a technique that would have been used to do that instead of? Well, um, it's a letting go of the uh, of, of uh, say fixation on the on the objects, and then a uh, a relaxation of uh, of uh, like a, a quality of awareness that is very sort of clear and open, but also not not fixing on the arising and passing of perceptions. So it's rather like uh, Lumpur Sumedha would often use the, the space in the room. So it's like noticing space, essentially. So noticing the space of the mind. That uh, space is is both the uh, is both a, 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 the kind of best analogy, but also the worst because it's also space is not conscious. So that um, the uh, the deathless uh, the deathless element isn't just uh, 
an aspect of the object world is also an aspect of awareness or of knowing as well so that that um, uh, that quality of of space but also the the quality of, of awareness so it's like a a uh, um, a com in a way a, a, a combination of qualities so that there's um, that when uh, when uh, it's talked about in in Thai in Thai language that the qualities that are, are, are talked about when the mind awakens to the deathless it's very alliterative in Thai sawang saat sangop which means uh, radiant pure and peaceful so that those those are the qualities that are I would say the felt experience of the mind awakening to the the deathless element. So it's a, a like like say attending to the space in the room rather than fixing on the people, listening to the silence between the 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 words, noticing the space between the fingers rather than just seeing the fingers. Uh, so that. Uh, that is say an entry point is uh, say space in terms of the, the three-dimensional perceptual world but it's also the, the the in a way the space of of awareness does that make sense so the inner space of the mind as well as the space of the the room so there's a a, 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 a in a way a, that blending of qualities so there's a, a an awareness that is peaceful that is uh, and the, and the um, a quality of, of purity, of, of like of, um, of perfection, and then a a, a quality of, of brightness. Difficult to describe, but that's a sawang saat song of purity, radiance, peacefulness are the the characteristics of that. So if you were sitting, you could have like attention that's relaxed, but not on anything in particular, just being totally with space of the mind without going into any particular essentially yeah and then uh, getting a feel for for that uh, that quality and then letting that strengthen and, and deepen so that then the the uh, sounds and feelings and so forth uh, arising and passing away but then there's the, the the mind is not being the attention is not being drawn in by that so it, so essentially like Sariputta is saying notice the space uh, in your your mind, even though there are all these refined states, notice the space uh, around those refined states, or within the, you know, the the space that permeates even those refined states of experience. So the 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 um, the third noble truth, uh, the realization of the cessation of dukkha, satchikata bhanti means it means to it needs to be realized. So. That's uh, that realizing in as uh, often uh, Lumpur Sumedha would talk about that as like noticing space, noticing the cessation, the ending of things, noticing the the emptiness, the empty nature of of things. So uh, the people are far more interesting than the space. Right? You and Allah are far more interesting than the space between you. Right? Humans are interesting. Space is not interesting. Space doesn't grab our attention. People do. You don't have newspaper headlines about space. Usually. 
<laughs> they're about people. You know? So the attention goes to the people because they are interesting, they're threatening, they're exciting, they're annoying, they are something. So our senses are geared towards uh, noticing objects. And so that the attending to the deathless is like that relaxing of attention so that both the the objects and the and the space that they appear in is noticed. Both the physical space but then also the psychological space. If you understand what I mean. So that there's a um <coughs> uh like a a an awakening of the mind to the, its own fundamental nature. You know, say so the qualities of the Dhamma are sanditiko, akaliko, ehipasiko. So apparent here and now, timeless. Um, and so that, that quality of uh, the mind awake in, in the present moment to its own nature. Then the, that is recognizing the, the birthless, the deathless, the timeless quality of, of Dhamma itself. You don't have to create the Dhamma is always there. You can't get away from it. You are it. It's like a wave trying to get away from the sea. Like, <laughs> it, that's what it's. That's what it's made of. You know, the, the the wave might not realize it's part of the sea, but it can't. It doesn't have an existence apart from it. So that that uh, the that reality is ever present. So. It's rather like the, the the waves are here in the carpet. <laughs> if you just change your vision, like the the picture is there in the magic eye. The three D image is there in the magic eye picture. You just have to change your vision. Or like the the words. I mean, just having printed words on a piece of paper. That the the meaning of this book is is uh, uh, hidden in the ink on the paper. But if you open up the book and then you you let the 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 light from the uh, from the bounces off the page come into your eye, then the mind can derive the meaning from the that uh, contact. So that the, it's it's always there. The meaning was there in the book before you started to read the book. So that the dhamma is always present, whether you pay attention to it or not. Does that make sense? Well, Ajahn Chah used to use the example of groundwater. You say the Dhamma is like groundwater. Whether you dig for it or not, the water is still in the ground. You don't create the water. You don't create the Dhamma. You can't lose it. You can't you don't create it. It's there. If you dig, you'll find it. If you don't dig, you won't find it. Okay, so to continue. The term, the deathless element, Amatadhatu, was mentioned above in the first reading with the suggestion that it is synonymous with the unconditioned, a Sankata Dhamma. It might be useful, however, to look briefly at the origin of the term, particularly since both deathless and element, in English at least, carry a tone of thingness with them, and thus convey an unintended concrete quality. On this point, a contemporary Buddhist scholar, Stephen Collins, is worth quoting. His proposition is that Amrutang in Sanskrit, Amata in Pali, is a classic Vedic reference to, and this is a quote from his little book called Selfless Persons. So Amata is an essential timelessness or a timeless essence, both preceding and in some sense underlying 
the ordered human world of time. This is the immobile hub of the moving wheel of time, the still point, Pada, beyond the ceaseless movement of samsara. So he uses the image of like the, the center of the wheel, like samsara is the the um, uh, endlessness of the uh, the rising and ceasing, and that the um, the deathless as the hub of that wheel, or uh, as he said that a timelessness or timeless essence preceding and underlying the ordered human world of time. The following passage is similar to the first one of this chapter, both in its description of the practice of attending to the deathless and in the dialogue from which the discourse takes its provenance. The Buddha has asked the assembly, so this is the Maha Malunkya Putta Sutta, the greater discourse to Malunkya Putta, so this is a uh, uh, referring to uh, both Sutta number 64 in the Majjhima Nikaya and also it's in the Book of the Nines in the Anguttara. The Buddha has asked the assembly, Bhikkhus, do you remember the five lower fetters as taught by me? So the first five of the Sangyojanas. The Venerable Malunkya Putta responds by saying that he does. But when he recites the list, apparently correctly, so uh, the um, uh, Sakaya Ditti, um, uh, Vichikicha, um, Silapata Paramasa, and Biapada um, uh, uh, and Kamaraga. So, um, uh, personality view, self view, uh, doubt, attachment to rites and rituals, um, aversion, and sense desire. He recites the list, apparently correctly. To his astonishment, the Buddha responds, Malunkya Putta, to whom do you remember me having taught the five lower fetters in this way? Would not the followers of other sects confute you with the simile of the infant? The Buddha then outlines this simile and shows how, quote, a young tender infant lying prone, so a little baby sort of, uh, um, lying down, could be said to be free of the five lower fetters. So a baby doesn't have personality view, uh, doesn't have an idea of, um, of, uh, its, uh, of uh, its personality, um, its personal history. It's free of skeptical doubt, because it doesn't have any conceptual thought. Fichikicha, a baby doesn't have any doubts. It doesn't have attachment to rules and conventions. No silapata paramasa. Sensual desire, karma raga, and ill will, biapada. Uh, so, rather like Venerable Anuruddha, the wind is taken out of Malunkya Putta's sails. But in due course, he also gets provided with a much more profound understanding of the Dhamma. So, uh, again, it's one of those uh, somewhat humorous exchanges, because you think, okay, Malunkya Putta, who has made some pretty drastic mistakes in the past, you think, okay, finally, you got something right, well done, well done. And then the Buddha says, no. When did you ever hear me explaining it like that? But I got it right. <laughs> Some of us probably had school teachers or university lecturers that were like that. So then the Buddha says, Here, a bhikkhu enters upon and remains in the first jhana, experiencing refreshment and pleasure born of withdrawal, viveka, accompanied by applied and sustained thought, vitaka and vichara. He regards whatever phenomena there are, sorry, 
He regards whatever phenomena there that are connected with the body, feeling, perceptions, mental formation, mental formations and consciousness as impermanent, unsatisfactory, a disease, a cancer, a barb, painful, an affliction, alien, as disintegrating, as void, as not-self. He turns his mind away from those states, and having done so, inclines his mind towards the property of deathlessness, recognizing this is peaceful, this is exquisite, the stilling of all mental processes, the relinquishing of all the paraphernalia of becoming, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. Standing there, he reaches the ending of the mental outflows, or, if not then, through that very dhamma passion, that dhamma delight, and the Pali for those are dhamma ragena, that's dhamma passion, dhamma nandiya, or dhamma delight, and from the total ending of the first five of the fetters, he is due to be reborn in the pure abodes, there to attain final nibbana, never again to return from that world. <clears throat> so this is very similar, uh, as you will notice, to a couple of other of the suttas that we, we've quoted. The um, uh, that the Panchataya Sutta, the Majima 102, where it says this is conditioned and thus gross, but there is this there is this cessation of formations, and also um, the uh, what's called the man from Atakanagara, um, and uh, where it, it uh, let's see, it speaks in a very similar way, like, uh, saying, um, "Well, I can find it." Yeah, this is uh, all that is conditioned and thus gross, but there is the cessation of formations. Having known there is this, and seeing the escape from it all, the Tathagata has gone beyond it. And then. Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, volitionally produced, and is dependently originated. That is transient and uncertain. Whatever is transient and uncertain is unsatisfactory. That which is unsatisfactory and does not belong to me is not what I am, is not myself. So the... Um, uh, this discourse to uh, Malunkya Putta then is... Uh, again, reflecting on the, the the refined states of mind as unsatisfactory, and, and you have one of these long um, strings of of uh, descriptions, these sort of uh, you know, of a whole sort of ten or, or more adjectives: impermanent, anicca, unsatisfactory, dukkha, a disease, roga, a cancer, a barb, painful, an affliction, alien, disintegrating, void, not self. So, kind of, that, uh, so that that's uh, uh, where you would normally think of the um, uh, say first jhana, second jhana, third jhana kind of these bright beautiful states of mind is very wholesome it's sort of deliberately emphasizing the the conditioned nature of those and um, as he says that uh, it's a unsatisfactory disease, a cancer I mean it's kind of emotional, emotive language it's sort of punchy language that uh, this fourth jhana is a cancer. What? <laughs> I thought this is the good stuff. Yeah. But it's deliberately trying to to get that perspective of not um, uh, identifying or attaching to that. 
He turns his mind away from those states and having done so, inclines his mind towards the property of deathlessness, recognizing this is peaceful, this is exquisite. And then the, um, as he says there, the stilling of all mental processes, so that's um, the, uh, uh, the Sankhara uh, Samadhi, the stilling of all the formations, then the uh, relinquishment of the paraphernalia of becoming, that's the Upadi, ending of craving, um, that's the, the uh, Tanha Kaya, dispassion, Viraga, cessation, Niroda, Nibbana. So it's like, then when the mind, say, uh, inclines towards the, the deathless or notices that space, both the space of awareness, the space, um, or the empty nature of of uh, all perceptions, all uh, formations, all uh, objects, then uh, there's that recognition. This is peaceful, this is exquisite. And that there's this uh, uh, delightful quality uh, as the mind awakens to the deathless element. Also that uh, this word inclining, this is a, a, one of Lumpur's uh, Samedo's favorite um, terms, that it Incline, inclining to Nibbana and um, the uh, let's see there's a, a um, in the uh, in the Sangyuta Nikaya in the uh, the section on the five faculties then it talks about the um, the the development of the five faculties that they like like the river Ganges, you know, inclines and slopes. The, the, all the streams form into the river Ganges, and then the river slopes and forms its its, its pathway to the sea. That so too the the five faculties: uh, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom. That they they incline and they slope towards nibbana. So uh, and so that was a phrase that uh, Lumpur Sumedha uh, uses very often: like inclining to nibbana. And so I feel like so. It's very, which means a sort of leaning. It isn't sort of, <laughs> it's not like going out and getting. There's a sort of, uh, like a, a tilting of attention, so that like the the relaxing of the view with the magic eye picture or that inclining to nibbana, um, as a as a as a kind of gentleness in that. It's like a, it's not a sort of striding. It's a just leaning, <laughs> like a just a tending of the attention in that direction. So I feel that uh, just as Ian Lumpur Samedo liked it for that reason, it's just a a, um, a kind of steering, but without that uh, any kind of stressfulness or without a uh, the the gaining mind um, uh, taking hold or sort of getting a, a a purchase in that. It's also in this um, uh, if that that quality of deathlessness is is recognised, then uh, as he said, that uh, if that's truly awakened to, then that's uh, they reach um, the end of the outflows, they reach full enlightenment. And then this last passage where it says, if not then, then through that very Dhamma passion or Dhamma delight, so if the mind is, as it inclines towards Nibbana, then, oh, this is great, this is fantastic. That's sort of Dhamma, Dhamma Raga, Dhamma Nandiya, when you get too excited about liberation, then that creates an obstruction. So that's called Dhamma Raga, the, the Dhamma passion, Dhamma Nandiya, the kind of delight in the Dhamma. So then that, 
results in the, uh, not such a, a full realization, but then the reaching a, the stage of non-returner instead. So uh, the um, uh, the stream enterer has ended the first three fetters. That's personality view, doubt, and attachment to conventions. And then the uh, the once returner, Sakadagami, they've uh, they've reduced the uh, they've ended the first three and they've reduced the the second two, which is sense desire and ill will, karma raga and um, biapada. And then an anagami has completely ended ill will and sense desire, but they've still got the other five. The last five fetters are still to be. Uh, transcended for the for the anagami so that's what it means but it says there's uh, from the total ending of the first five of the fetters that's what what, uh, what that what that means so that um, the uh, awakening to the deathless then in that uh, if there is that kind of excitement or the mind gets got over enthusiastic about it then that creates a, a little bit of an obstruction the same wording is repeated with reference to the other three rupajanas and similarly for the first three arupajanas, the two uppermost realms of concentration, the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, and the quote cessation of perception and feeling nirodha samapati, are too refined a basis to allow any investigative reflection of this type. So this is interesting that that um, not that many people probably spend a lot of time in arupajana, I would guess, <laughs> but in case you do. That uh, the uh, the refinement of concentration in these those two uh, upper uh, the two the two highest levels of concentration the um, neither perception nor non perception and cessation of perception and feeling that's too refined for any kind of reflective thinking to occur and so that there, it's impossible to have that reflection of this is impermanent unsatisfactory not self and so on that. Uh, that the the mind is is too free from any kind of form and is too too uh, one pointed to apply that reflective quality. Here is a passage from the Itivutika on a similar theme. This was said by the Blessed One, because there are these three elements. What three? The form element, the formless element, and the element of cessation. So that's the Rupadhatu, Arupadhatu, and Niroda Dhatu. These are the three. By fully, by fully understanding form and not getting stuck in formless states, they are released into cessation, with death left in their wake. So they left death behind them. Having touched with his own person the deathless realm that can't be owned, all grasping relinquished, the taints all gone, the awakened one displays the sorrowless state that's free from stain. In the purity of unhindered awareness, in turning away from concern with the conditioned, the holy, peaceful and clear reality is revealed. And then here's a passage from the Book of the Nines again. Once, friend, when I was staying in Saketa at the game refuge in the Black Forest, the nun Jatila Bhagika went to where I was staying, and on arrival, having bowed to me, she stood to one side. As soon as she had stood to one side, she said to me, The concentration whereby 
neither pressed down nor forced back, nor with mental formations kept blocked or suppressed, still as a result of release, contented as a result of stillness, and as a result of contentment, one is not agitated. This concentration is said by the Blessed One to be the fruit of what? I said to her, this concentration is said by the Blessed One to be the fruit of awakening. So uh, this is a fairly um, unique expression that's here, that the the, uh, the nun Jatila Bhagika. And Jatila, she probably came from a, a, a group of wanderers that had um, dreadlocks. The, the Jats are the, the uh, matted hair um, ascetics. So Jatila, she probably came from a group of, of uh, matted hair ascetic nuns before she joined the, the Buddha's disciples. Um, so when uh, it says... Uh, the concentration, there's a concentration neither pressed down nor forced back, nor with mental formations kept blocked or, or suppressed, still as a result of release, contented as a result of stillness, and as a result of contentment when it's not agitated. So stillness, contentment, and freedom from agitation. But the, uh, uh, but with the, um, uh, the mental formations, they're not kept blocked or suppressed, so that, that there's mental formations are arising and taking shape, they're, they're, they're doing their thing, but the attitude is uh, completely cool and, uh, and still and, and uh, unagitated in relationship uh, to them, so that that uh, is then described as that's a, another uh, say way of, of um, representing or describing the... the the nature of the awake mind. Although this realization is, in its own way, remarkably simple, it cannot be overemphasized that, as with Venerable Anuruddha's enlightenment, it is necessarily based on a massive foundation of spiritual maturity. The nun who was speaking to Venerable Ananda, so yeah, excuse me, it was, uh, it was uh, Venerable Ananda that she was talking to in that, that sutta. Uh, the nun who was speaking to Venerable Ananda was an arahant. The purity and simplicity of these accounts and these teachings can thus belie their depth and the sheer spiritual strength required to actualize them. It's also um, should mention we, there was an earlier passage, the which uh, going back to uh, Amravati is the deathless realm, which is kind of the motto of, of Amravati and when uh, this place opened up in 84, 85 then was uh, often appeared in uh, Lumpur Sumedha's teachings which is the uh, verse 21 of the Dhammapada Heedfulness is the path to the deathless Heedlessness is the path to death The heedful never die The heedless are as if dead already or it also often is translated as, as, just as mindfulness is the path to deathless and heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful never die, the heedless are as if dead already. Though the, when Amravati was opened, there was a little book of Lumpur Samedo's teachings that was published, it was called Mindfulness, the Path to the Deathless. And this was the deathless realm, Amravati. The nuns walked all the way here from Chithurst, so that was the path to the deathless. <laughs> So that uh, this is also a, a, a helpful in terms of trying to understand or get 
quote-unquote, get to grips with the deathless element, to get a sense for that, uh, mindfulness is the path to the deathless, heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful never die, the heedless are as if dead already. So when the Buddha says, the mindful never die, it doesn't mean that if you're mindful, your body won't stop breathing. Because that's, that's not what it means. It's just when there is true mindfulness, or apamada is the, the Pali word, uh, heedfulness, uh, like a full-scale mindfulness, that when there is that apamada, true, true mindfulness, complete mindfulness, then the mind is not identified with any of the births and deaths, any uh, of the arising and passing aspects of, of the mind or of the body. So that if it's recognized the body is not self, then if the body lives or dies, what's that got to do with anything important? It's like the body might die, but so what? You know, that's not self anyhow. Rupang anatta. So if that quality of uh, of uh, heedfulness, apamada, is fully established, then there's a, a clear uh, knowing that the, all that's arising and passing away is, is not is not self. As it says in the Anattalakana Sutta, this is not me, this is not what I am, this is not myself. So uh, then the opposite, the heedless are as if dead already. So then if the mind is constantly attaching to the born and the dying, the beginning and the ending, then uh, it's a uh, uh, and again, the Buddha's being a little bit blunt here <laughs> to, to get people's attention. The heedless are as if dead already, they're walking dead. You, know, you might be walking around, but your mind, if your mind is identified with uh, the, the conditioned realm, feelings, thoughts, uh, perceptions, memories, ideas, that's what the mind is sort of identifying with, then he, again, it's a, it's a kind of a uh, blunt or challenging way to speak. That, that, yeah, you're as if you might, you know, you're as if dead already. You're, you're not, you're not in the world of, of uh, real life. Uh, the, the mind is not awake to, to the dhamma. It's not awake to the, the timeless reality, to that quality of, of the deathless, the uh, amata, or uh, ajata, the, uh, the unborn, the, the, uh, the deathless. The um, so it's uh, it's not easy to get a, a sense for this um, quality attending to the deathless, but uh, I feel that that's, that sense of relaxing the attention those two things of relaxing the attention being fully awake but relaxing, <laughs> noticing space, and then the the quality of inclining to nibbana, inclining to the deathless that sense of just turning the attention in a, in a gentle and non, uh, um, non-grasping way, that those give a, a sense of how that quality of, of inner spaciousness, how that intrinsic, timeless, unborn, undying quality is, is recognized, is realized. It's interesting um, what you're describing when you approach, you know, when I was um, talking with uh, Sammy Mikhail's wife, and she came to visit here, uh, the fortune center offered to write a briefings from his book. She really got a very strong reaction to the fact that she felt that the Chansomedo 
you must trust effort. But it's interesting how not everybody understands. You know, she felt that you know people like Ayakima, Tenzin Kongu, Sanyu, of course, were like really against God. That's what she felt, mm -hmm. really. And she could not see the effort that Absent Somebody was talking about. Did she raise that with him? <laughs> Would have been an interesting conversation. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, Lumpur Samedo, he, he teaches effort by a, a sort of roundabout fashion, getting up at half past two in the morning and doing a, an hour of, of yoga and vigorous exercises for getting his uh, getting his day underway I often would feel like we would gather at five in the morning for the morning chanting meditation he's already like halfway through his day the rest of us are like and he's like he's already up and running and halfway down the track so he but he didn't uh, he didn't make a a kind of he wasn't sort of cracking the whip by speaking about it a lot by the way his own example was extraordinarily vigorous so that you you got the hint <laughs> through his his way of being any other thoughts reflections yes um, when we are uh, recognizing that that was quality of the mind or this the space on the mind is it right to de deliberately like recognize how peaceful it is and uh, so how to say um, in order to try to incline the mind to that space deliberately recognize oneself that this is really peaceful and free of you know uh, worry or yes yeah and and it's like with every I, I, one of the things I say over and over again is that. Uh, you have to look at the results of the way that you work so that if you say okay it's a good thing to 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 recognize yeah this is peaceful and then you apply that and then uh, then you you see okay having brought up that kind of a reminder that sort of inner reflection or, or steering what's what's the result of that what where, what, what, what effect does it have so then you see for yourself and uh, and then you, you can recognize, okay, well, I need to be uh, a little bit less sort of excited about that. This is peaceful! <laughs> okay, it's peaceful, fine, 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 fine. Just chill, chill, cool, cool it down. Or it might be too quiet. It's like, this is peaceful. No, this is peaceful. <laughs> so you, you, you kind of recognize the effects of the way you're, you're working and, and then let that, the, the effects then... Uh, inform how you you take it from there. Okay. Oh. One one question. Trying uh, to change in how to practice and how to chant towards the deathless uh, with the deathless spaciousness and awareness 
coming together. Um, I remember several talks at Long Paul when he stipulated, but I don't remember anything where the Buddha is talking in these terms. Is there anything in that? Um, I don't, um, nothing immediately springs to mind. Yeah. Because, I mean, what, what uh, I realize when I speak with people... You mean like noticing space? That kind of, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's a... Uh, uh, no, there is. There's um, uh, Like when he, he's giving advice to Rahula, and he says, be like space. Yeah. Be like the space element. Because space is undisturbed by you know, anything that happens in it, the space is not distressed or disturbed. Um, so there, there is that. Um, that's one that springs to mind. There's also the Chula Sunyata Sutta where he says um, he starts off saying of uh, bhikkhus. This hall is completely devoid of, completely devoid of elephants and horses. There are no elephants and horses. What form there is here? There is the, there is the form of the hall, but it's empty of elephants and horses. And it goes through successive, successive things that, it, that, the, that the, there is emptiness of. So he starts off with an obvious thing, like there are no elephants in this hall. There's no elephant in the living room, you know. <laughs> and then. So there's that. So he talks about it in terms of of emptiness, like the Chula Sunyata Sutta in the Middle Length Discourses. In that sense, also what you mentioned recently about you know, when the sun, the morning sun, falls into the on the Western Wall, the and if there's no Western Wall, it goes on the floor. The floor and then, it, yeah. it doesn't land. Yeah. It doesn't so that quality of uh, unsupported mm-hmm. uh, consciousness. Yeah, it's a, that's the same sutta. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the progressive, uh, it's empty of this quality and empty, empty. And this, so there's a, and it starts off with those external examples, and then, if I remember correctly, it turns to the other uh, uh, internal qualities. Let's see. Twelve fourteen. Yeah, the the it's in this in the chapter on knowing emptiness and the radiant mind, and we actually included the whole of that Chula Sunyata Sutta in here. Um, Ananda, just as this palace of Megara's mother is empty of elephants. Cattle, horses, and mares, empty of gold and silver, empty of the assembly of men and women. There is present only this, non-emptiness, namely the singleness dependent on the Sangha Bhikkhus. So then it goes, um, not attending to this perception, then, um, uh, you know, the uh, stage by stage by stage, not, uh, then not attending to, to that, then 
you notice the uh, the um, more and more refined objects, and it goes all the way through to um, Uh, thus he regards it as empty of what is not there, but as to what remains there, he understands that, what is, that which is present thus. This is present. <laughs> thus and under this too is his genuine, undistorted, pure entry into emptiness. Then it goes in from those, all those external things about um, the, uh, um, the, 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 um, the buildings, the forest, the village, and then the elements. And then he goes into the um, um, different states of meditation. So it goes from the outside qualities to the, the inner qualities. Um, and he goes all the way. So this field of perception is empty of the perception of the, the base of nothingness. The field of perception is empty of the perception of the base of neither perception nor non-perception. There is present only this non-emptiness, namely that connected with the six sense bases that are dependent on this body and conditioned by life. Thus he regards it as empty of what is not there, but as to what remains he understands that which is present thus. This is present. Thus and under this too is his genuine, undistorted, pure entry into emptiness. So it goes through that whole sort of, uh, using those examples of the building empty of horses and cows and whatnot, and then uh, the four elements being empty, and then the different mind states, all the way up to these refined arupajanas all being empty. But then it's kind of interesting that right at the end, what is here is this body and the six senses. That's sort of the meditator framework is here. And uh, and so that, and that's uh, uh, this is present. Thus Ananda, this too is his genuine, undistorted, pure entry into emptiness. But even though all things are empty, <laughs> the clock is empty, the ticking is empty, and it now says 12 minutes past, so it's time to empty this sala. <laughs>